saw King killed and Malcolm had been killed, and we felt like the system was not going to tolerate peaceful change. And so we had to do something more radical. She felt some remorse about not having taken care of me growing up. She said she'd failed as a mother, but she was so thankful that despite that fact, we were the greatest of friends. With the South Central Third World News, I'm Ernesto Arce with Voices from the Front Lines and your news from South Central to the Global South. Justice for Julius Jones celebrated last week's decision not to move forward with the state killing of the Oklahoma prisoner. Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. We're always available on our own podcast from voicesfromthefrontlines.com. As always, we have an exciting show. We'll begin with Victor Wallace a longtime comrade and former editor of Socialism and Democracy, who's doing a Zoom exhibition of his mother's paintings, Diane Esmond, this Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, put out by the Marxist Education Project. Please join us. We'll give you information throughout the show. Then we'll hear from Ernesto Arce and his dynamic South Central Third World News. Then we'll have a moving conversation with Mark Masaoka, one of the longtime leaders in the Japanese-American community and the United Auto Workers. We discussed his formative years and how he and I joined paths as auto workers and members of the League of Revolutionary Struggle at the GM Van Nuys plant. Part two of this three-part conversation will play on subsequent shows. Then we'll go out with Awanile, the amazing hypnotic Afro-Cuban Wawongo Santeria Orisha, embodied by the Fania legend, Hector Lavoe. We hope you enjoy our efforts and more complex programming, more time consuming to produce. Send me the appreciations and comments at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com and go on our site to register so we know who you are and you can get our weekly mailings on the day of the show and later the link to the podcast. Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. It's a real pleasure to talk to a dear friend of mine. 41 years together, I think I knew you beginning around 1980 when I was working for GM Van Nuys plant. The person who I'm talking about is Victor Wallace, who a lot of you know is the author of Red Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism, which is one of the 50 books that we highlight at the Strategy and Soul Movement Center. So if you ever want to get a copy, 
You can come by the Movement Center at 3546 Martin Luther King. That's a chance to get to know us as well. But that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of Victor's life. But in some way, we're going to tell Victor's life in terms of his relationship with his mother, Diane Esmond, who's an artist who you can see her work on her own website. Just check her out. Beautiful, beautiful, still lifes, far scenes, great use of color. But what we're talking about today is that Victor, as her son, is initiating a project where he's going to talk about his mother and his mother's art. And for me, it's a combination of having read this beautiful talk you've outlined is a son's relationship to his mother. Just having said that, I read everything and it's very beautiful. So there's only one paragraph I'll read from your actual writing. I asked myself why my mother and the references uh, to give the complete poetic work of Percy Blythe Shelley. I asked myself because my mother always respected me. She nonetheless was, if anything, alarmed by my leftist convictions, which were already strong by the time I was 16. But I could see, even without probing her taste for Shelley, that where she shunned the political debate, she was able to extend herself humanly in a manner that transcended the limitations of her class origin. Why don't you talk about your whole family's class origins and the struggle she had, the struggle you had, because you were one of the most dedicated people I know, and you didn't come out of the proletariat. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, to explain the reference to Shelley, I mean, Shelley was a revolutionary poet. Marx loved him. He wrote among his works, uh, The Song to the Men of England, which is a really a rousing call to revolution, to overturning the uh, class relationships in, in that country. Uh, but in terms of my own background, my mother's family included a, a father born in India to a Jewish family, which had migrated there from Baghdad two generations earlier. Her father, in partnership with his brother, had been one of the leading French entrepreneurs in the oil industry. So she grew up comfortably. She, she was uh, born in London because of her father's basic commitment to the British Empire. Uh, but her, her mother was French and they lived in France. And France was the country that she identified with uh, all her life, even though she was not a French citizen. She was a British citizen for most of the time. Well, she was always a British citizen. She, for, she was for a while a U.S. citizen uh, during the 1940s. So anyway, that's the family she came out of. And uh, it was not at all expected uh, that she would uh, really go into any profession at all. That was not what was expected of, of young ladies in that period. Uh, she was one of three sisters and the others uh, followed the path of the typical socialite path. And my mother, on the contrary, was always uh, a, a bit different from them. And part of it, ironically, was because her father had expected her to be his son. Uh, she ended up uh, being, in a sense, a, a special kind of daughter. And he, but he trained her in a way uh, as though she was going, going to be a, a man, uh, to the extent that uh, in her dedication to that book, and that's why the, the, the complete works of Shelley, uh, she signed the dedication or the inscription. Uh, from your disciple and only son. So this was, uh, this was something distinctive about her. But the point about the class origins, I guess what I would want to stress 
is that just because you're born into a class doesn't mean that you stay identified with that class. It's, it, that's a, a, it's a deliberate choice you make. And I felt uh, alienated from my class of origin at a very young age, essentially, and I think initially, because I was upset by the power relationship within the household itself. I mean, and the way I put it in uh, my remarks is that the person who spent the most time taking care of me and my brother was not the same person as the one who would play the biggest role in our lives later on. And this disconnect upset me. As a child, I would muse about the roles of the different adults in my life, my father, my mother, and my nanny. And that, that was the kind of imbalance that, that always struck me. So my relationship with my mother was, uh, in a sense, a, a little bit detached in that way. She was very loving towards me, especially in, in, in my infancy. She was always loving towards me, but she, she didn't take care of me uh, as I was growing up. And so I established a relationship with her, which was more like a mature friendship uh, rather than a kid who was being uh, shown around and told what to do uh, by his parent. The voice you're hearing is Victor Wallace. The program we want to talk about this Friday, November 26th, there's going to be a program put on by the Marxist Educational Project, marxedproject.org. Go on there and scroll down to, uh, they have so many great programs, scroll down to November 26th, and it's called The Art of Diane Esmond, presented by her son, Victor Wallace. And if you want to register, I'll certainly be there Friday at 11 Pacific time. I'll be on the pro, you know, listening to the program, watching it. So go down there and register. It says... Uh, there's, a, there's a small fee, which I suggest you pay if you can. And if not, register anyway, because the day of the event, they'll already send you a link, and you won't have to go on there and try to figure it out. Okay, so it's marksedproject.org, November 26th, The Art of Diane Esmond, presented by our son, Victor Wallace. So this is what we're talking about, is over the, I call F the Pilgrims weekend, that you have something positive to do. So that's a great idea is 11 o'clock West Coast, two o'clock East Coast and all kinds of European times you can figure out. So one thing, Victor, is that, you know, Mao said that the, for almost every progressive revolutionary child, the first time you see the class struggles in the family and that that becomes the site of some early understandings of inequality, oppression, class relations, if you're smart enough to see them. Uh, I was very shaped by the struggle between my father and mother, in which I took the side of my mother very, very early, because I had to, go into details. But I think it is important about the formative events, but your main conclusion, which is for everybody, is everybody is born into something, and then you have to decide what you want to do with it. You know, and that's part of the revolutionary journey. So keep going on the revolutionary journey with your mother and her work. Well, I guess my relationship to her work was, I mean, I, I was always uh, interested in it. Uh, obviously, its immediate effect on me in my youngest years was, was that it uh, was what uh, took her away from uh, direct presence during mm. the day. She was very dedicated, committed to it. It was really a full-time uh, occupation for her. Uh, she was very serious about it. 
but uh, what happened is that we, we had come, you know, she grew up in France, as I said, and being a Jewish family, uh, we were, of course, in danger when France was invaded by the Nazis in 1940. And uh, we, we came to New York. And my mother never was happy in the United States. And she only really became herself in the fullest sense, uh, also because her relationship with my father was, was not very good. Uh, she only really became able to fulfill herself when she eventually returned to France. And what that meant in terms of my relationship to her is that for years and years, really from the time I was about 16 on, uh, most of the year we were separated by an ocean. So our relationship was carried out through correspondence, through, through letters. Uh, and that was before the days when one routinely made phone calls across the ocean and that kind of thing. There was nothing of that. It was altogether exceptional to make a phone call. So it was basically letters, except during the uh, weeks, maybe the, uh, each year that, that, that I would see her. So I, I guess that's what uh, s sort of cemented and, and let's say maintained the relationship between her and me was, was our correspondence. Now, do you have copies of a lot of them? Yeah, I, I kept all the letters uh, pretty much from yeah, the earliest letter I have was uh, from when I was 17. And I saved them. And uh, I, it's, it's funny because uh, I'd, I'd save them in their envelopes because she never put dates on the letter. She'd put the day of the week. So uh, before I threw away the envelopes, I looked at the postmark and I got an approximate date, uh, at least for each letter. Are you going to read at least one of the letters in your presentation? Or well, something. I hadn't thought about it, uh, but... Uh, I think I, you should. I, I could, yes. Uh, I think you should I go mean, through I, the letters and find... Because it's so fantastic, you know? Yeah. Letter writing is, is very intimate, and it is being in connection. You know, there's people in the same room who are not connected. And there's people writing thoughtful letters back and forth. That's terrific. I didn't know that story. It would be a, a nice touch. Tell us about how do you describe art that you can't yet see. Now, one thing I'll tell you is that our listeners, because this is a radio show, you're on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, but also streaming live on the web. I just want to say we just finished the Pacifica Archives fundraiser. It's one a year. that goes out to all five Pacifica stations. And we raised $5,500 and a lot of the people who gave were from all over the country. So we want to build up a national and international audience for KPFK and, and, and voices. And one way you do that is you can go on either stream live on the web every Tuesday at 3, and then you can figure out, of course, your own time. But also, if you go on our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com, by the next day, our producer of voices... Ernesto Arce will have it up on the website. So wherever you are, you go and you click and you're going to see it. And the reason I'm saying that is we're going to have some nice art on the website of Diane Esmond. When we put out the flyer that you got in preparation for today's show, you'll see a couple of beautiful examples of our art. And then again, just go uh, click on Diane Esmond. It comes right up with a beautiful website. So I just want to say that Victor is talking about art but you will be able to see it. But tell us in your words how you understand her art. That's a tough question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's uh, a it, tough it, show, Victor. How to depict it. Well, I, 
in the presentation, uh, I try to present the works uh, in roughly in chronological order of, the, of their production. And in the, the early years, in the 1930s, while she was still uh, in France before the war, uh, most of the paintings that we have are paintings of, of people, uh, including especially people in, in the circus, also men in a cafe, uh, women in a dressing room of a theater and that type of thing. And they were quite uh, realistic, figurative, uh, but, but in a style that was, you, know, you might say, similar to some of the uh, earlier French uh, painters in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, then when she started up again, really around 1950, her lines, uh, she, she had much stronger lines uh, between things. So there's more, they're more, a little bit more geometrical. They were still figurative things, but there were still lifes, uh, buildings, countryside, landscapes. Uh, there were also some paintings of, of people, but they were in a way more stylized, uh, sort of with strong lines, like say black lines separating the different colors uh, uh, typically. Uh, at a certain stage in her work. Uh, but then uh, she, as she developed further, the, the lines, you might say, sort of dissolved. One color would uh, sort of fade into another or would, uh, would directly confront another without a line separating them. That's a, a rough idea of it. The colors she used were, were very strong, quite striking, a, a lot of contrast in many cases. Yeah, there's a lot of use of color. I'm just looking at this, yeah. uh, this jazz drummer. Yep. Black jazz drummer looks great. Was mm -hmm. it called Red Forest that you sent me? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure whether that was her title or, or ours. I mean, many it's of them gorgeous. are untitled. The thing is, she does some stuff with really great color. I mean, that's what I'm struck by is yep. the use of color. And, and of course, I, I always gravitate to reds and oranges. That's my two favorites. So yeah. there's some really great, there's some, uh, there's a vase. There's some still lifes where she does oranges that I think are great. So it's going to be fun, folks. Here's the point. Um, besides everything else, besides the art's going to be great, because I know Victor for so long, uh, I'd like to do one of my mom, who is not, not something about my mom. Uh, she wasn't an artist, but she was a wonderful person, and she was an, a fierce anti-fascist. And she taught me so early that the Jews and the Negroes are in the same boat and everybody hates us. And the fascists are everywhere. And I think that today, although I add, of course, we broadened the analysis, but I'd like to do something about my mom. So my point is, I know everything, Victor, but I still see at the heart of this, a son who really loves and respects his mom and wants to elevate her historical record. And I think that's very beautiful in reading your story and reading what's sort of behind this. It's, it, yes, it is about art. I'm not saying it's not. But it's also about uh, a son who is, uh, like me, relatively older, trying to figure out legacy. And one legacy is go back and help your mother's legacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would just like to add one thing about the paintings and one thing about the correspondence. Uh, the the final stage of the paintings, which is the one that I think is of broadest significance today, was her paintings of the tropical forest, uh, which was inspired by the time she spent in the Caribbean, especially on the island of St. Lucia. The, these are the most brilliant 
um, of her paintings, although in the very last stage, uh, they became very dark and uh, a, little bit, a little bit abstract, but you could always recognize and have the feeling of, of the forest. The other thing I want to mention about the correspondence, and I'll find the letter where she said this, she felt some remorse about not having taken care of me growing up. She said she'd failed as a mother, but she was so thankful that despite that fact, we were the greatest of friends. So this was, in a way, uh, what, uh, how our relationship developed. Well, and since she was raised to be a man, mm-hmm. you know, psychologically, the idea of the father slash mother saying, I must make my own life primary, and then having to revisit often the children and go, oops, whoops. Now, I'm happy to say that this new generation of fathers, of which I'm one, didn't get trapped in that sex role. You know, I mean, we are really, really devoted fathers, and there's a growing number of them. But the point is that life has contradictions and life has revisits. You know, right, redemptions and uh, reconnections and resurrections. So the fact that your mom says, I'm sorry about this, but it sounds pretty great, Victor. That's what I'm trying to say. For most of the people listening, I think they think, sounds good to me. You know, Uh, you, you corresponded. You stayed as close friends. You pursued your career. Uh, I know you so well. You're, you're not a scarred person. You know, you're not a, you're a very generous person. You know, there are some people that always got some beef. You don't know what's going on, but it's something. Really, I think you're profoundly generous. So why don't you end by telling our listeners maybe your last, as, you, as sort of you're going on to your performance, what are you thinking about? What are you caring about? And then tell people again how they can make sure that they join us this Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific time, 2 p.m. at the marksedproject.org, and you'll go on and register. So what are your closing comments and encouragement of people to attend the event? My great feeling uh, now is that my mother ended her life disappointed that her art seemed not to have made much of an impact. Uh, She had positive reviews for exhibitions, but she sold very few of her paintings. And she, I think, was disappointed by that. And I have felt a responsibility to make her work known. And that's my greatest desire at this point. And I think that what gives it a special force is that although her work was not in the style of the sort of vanguard at the time that she was producing it, the vanguard in the art context, Uh, It has a tremendous significance for us now in the sense of uh, providing a kind of uh, depiction of the tropical forest. That was her basic theme in the last years of her career. Uh, The tropical forest, which we as a species are in danger of losing at the risk of our own existence. So, So I see her art as carrying this larger message. And at the same time, I'm committed sort of personally to her becoming known in the way that she aspired to. Well, I do believe that those who have left do continue their life through those who are living. She's probably up there or wherever she is saying, thanks, Victor. You are trying to get me the recognition, if not I deserve, that I wanted. And I think it's going to be a great event. I will be there. And I urge everyone to be there. I mean, 
Voices from the Front Lines is all about, you know, it's all about call and response. Uh, I've had so many authors say, I come on the show and actually people buy the book or people call me and they show up, you know, and I said, yeah, well, they said that's not on the normal show. You're on a show and you don't know what's happening on the other side. I know you've really been doing some great work, as have I, throughout our life in connecting with prisoners. Uh, are any of them going to be listening? Well, the prisoners themselves can't be, but they will tell their friends and family on the outside who may be listening indeed. Okay. And a few of them do have web web access to websites, but not the ones you know. They're all the most revolutionary prisoners that are in solitary and being shipped all over the place. But we will try to also tell anybody who knows prisoners, figure out how to always reach out to them, help them, and get them this material. So the reason we focus so much on send me an email at eric at voices from the front lines. Do you want to give people a way to reach you, Victor? I'm asking. Sure. My email is zendive, Z-E-N-D-I-V-E, at AOL.com. Yeah, very famous in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I've sent 4,000 to that. Zendive at AOL.com, Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. And we'd both like to hear from you because that's part of the call and response. Then this Friday at 11 o'clock, it'd be cool. It's the day after, you know, as I call after Pilgrim's Day. You wake up and you go online, go to the Marxist Education Project, scroll down to November 26th, register and register beforehand. And then afterwards, you can send Victor an email and you can send us an email again. And then you can go on our website, Voices from the Frontlines, where this show will be up tomorrow. And there'll be nice, you'll see some nice photos that we already have of Diane Esmond's art. And my dear friend, Victor, this has been wonderful, and I'm so happy we can make this happen. I'm very grateful to you, Eric. This is a wonderful opportunity. I welcome uh, all the interest that people may have in in this project. Okay, everybody, you've been on Voices from the Frontlines. This was a conversation with Victor Wallace, and we'll talk to you soon. With the South Central Third World News, I'm Ernesto Arce with Voices from the Front Lines and your news from South Central to the Global South. Justice for Julius Jones celebrated last week's decision not to move forward with the state killing of the Oklahoma prisoner. But Jones's family says the clemency granted to the death row inmate by the state of Oklahoma is just the first step in getting justice. Antoinette Jones, speaking on behalf of the family, released a statement that said Governor Kevin Stitt's 11th hour commutation needs to be followed by a pardon or a new trial. She welcomed the decision but said her brother is still serving a life without parole sentence for a crime he did not commit. Jimmy Lawson, Jones's attorney, joined a rally in Oklahoma City and spoke to media as the crowd celebrated the stay of execution. We're grateful for uh, the governor's effort, but we also recognize that there's still some issues with the conviction itself, and so there's still more work to do, even as we have spared Julius's life, we still have to make sure that Julius continues to get justice. Jones has been on death row since his conviction in 2002 for the 1999 killing of Paul Howell. He insists he did not commit the crime and has alibis. 
Jones's family says he was at home at the time of Howell's death, but they were not called to the stand as witnesses during the trial. The death penalty in the U.S. is a racist and classist, state-sanctioned killing that disproportionately targets very low-income suspects, mostly African-American men, who are charged and sometimes wrongfully convicted of murdering whites or wealthier people. Justice for Julian says the case was riddled with odious racial discrimination. This included a police officer's use of a racial slur during Jones's arrest and the state's removal of all but one prospective black juror. It was reported that jurors used the N-word during jury deliberations. Of course, the Oklahoma City decision was much better news than what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Leftist media described it as a monstrous display of systemic racism that Kyle Rittenhouse, a white supremacist vigilante, was caught on camera killing two unarmed protesters and injuring a third. Some called it a premeditated terror attack, while others point out that the ruling follows a blatantly biased trial and proves once again that there are separate justice systems for white people and people of color. Right-wing and network news in usual reactionary fashion had a field day pointing out that even some progressive news agencies walked back their outrage by admitting that Rittenhouse did act in self-defense. What is lost in the contrived confusion of details and legal jargon is the simple truth that Rittenhouse crossed state lines with an illegally held weapon, having clearly stated his intention of targeting Black Lives Matter protesters. An estimated 21 million Venezuelans voted in regional and local elections for more than 3,000 positions. It's considered a critical test for the revolutionary government of Nicolás Maduro. Hundreds of regional legislative city council and mayoral seats, among others, are being contested between the PSUV, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, and the right-wing MEUD, or the Democratic Unity Table. Maduro called on Venezuelans to cast a vote against U.S. imperialism. He blasted accusations made by the U.S. State Department that Venezuela's election process was corrupt, pointing out that the past two U.S. elections were legally contested. The last one took about two months to declare, when former President Donald Trump blamed Joe Biden for stealing the election. Maduro says in that case, Venezuela did not interfere in U.S. internal affairs. Meanwhile, investigative reporting has revealed that riots in Cuba were incited and promoted from within the United States, mainly among the right-wing dissident population in Miami. Telesud released a collage of videos from anti-Cuban government mercenaries who posted flyers and spoke of detailed plans to sabotage the island's roads and industries as a way to overthrow the Communist Party government of Miguel Díaz-Canel. A man in military gear holding an assault rifle, presumably from Miami, says, quote, we represent about 80 people who are prepared to storm the island to provoke a situation that would result in freedom for the Cuban people. We don't want the days and months to go by, and Diaz-Canel is still in power. We want to show them that we're not playing around." Unquote. The Cuban government says it's just the latest in a series of decades-long and more recent U.S.-backed attempts to stoke instability on the island. U.S. media focused on what it called an authoritarian government's repression of the democratic right to demonstrate, but once again Cuba responded with evidence that it presented to the OAS, the Organization of American States, that provocateurs working with foreign government intelligence agencies were leading riots and violent attacks with the intention of overthrowing the revolutionary government.
With the South Central Third World News segment of Voices from the Front Lines, I'm Ernesto Arce. Now back to Eric Mann and Channing Martinez in the studio. So we're in studio with Mark Masaoka, who I've known since about 1975 when I joined the August 29th movement, which was a communist group. And the, the greatest thing that the August 29th movement said is you got to go into the point of production and get a job. Well, I was already an uh, operating room orderly at Alta Bates. I was already in the working class. Uh, but they said it would really be great if we could get jobs at the so-called point of production in the major factories and try to challenge the unions like the United Auto Workers that had a million members at the time. And thanks to my wife, Leanne, who got into the Ford Milpitas plant and then got me in, I've been in the auto industry since probably 1976, I think. And I was shaped by the communist experience, which still is very one of the formative traditions in my present worldview. So I met Mark. Uh, we we worked together on a lot of stuff about reforming the United Order Workers. We worked together for more than 10 years in the campaign to keep GM Van Nuys open, which is in my book, Taking on General Motors, which is in the film, Tiger by the Tail, and which is the story I just did about Ed Asner uh, that's in Counterpunch magazine. And the reason I wanted Mark to come on the show is because First, I have a lot of admiration for you. I really do, as a long-distance runner. We'll talk about fighting anti-Japanese chauvinism inside the auto industry, and I think winning in our factory, which is pretty amazing. And I'm very interested in the evolution of your thinking, including where you are today. So, part one, how'd you grow up? What was your first consciousness? What were your parents like? Where'd you start your life? My family's history is that my parents were both in the concentration camps during World War II. Right. My father joined the 442nd Brigade and was part of the Japanese-American unit then. And his brother was the leader of the Japanese-American Citizens League at right. the time. And, and after the war... Explain what, what were they doing? So this was, at that time, the Japanese-American community was, had the, the immigrant generation, the Issei, and then, because immigration was then later blocked by the, the gentleman's agreement with Japan, that immigration was halted except for women. And so you had a very clear distinction between the Japanese-speaking Japanese citizens, they couldn't become naturalized, and then your American-born Nisei, who grew up and wanting to be, you know, this was their home, this is America. And, um, and so to sort of create an organization of the Nisei, he started the Japanese Americans. He wasn't one, but one of the major figures in building the Japanese American Citizens League. And then at the time of Pearl Harbor, when uh, you know the United States then made the decision to incarcerate 120,000 Japanese Americans, then on these young Japanese American leaders of the JCO was thrust the leadership because the, the Japanese speaking people had all been rounded up and imprisoned right away. They were then given the task of guiding the Japanese and American community and what to do with this. And they counseled acquiescence to the directive, and they counseled 
the idea of supporting the war effort right. and volunteering for the war. Right. And so that made them very controversial within the community. There was a riot at Manzanar against them, and they airlifted my grandmother and my father, who was a teenager, out of, out of the camp. Um, but, but, you know, eventually their view of to, to, to be loyal to America then in the post-war era, um, people felt that that was... Uh, that was an appropriate, you know, they, they, you know, they were getting the GI Bill benefits and, you know, and they felt this is our way into becoming accepted in America. And they, they bought into that, that view and, and then became used as a force of the first Asian American group to be designated as a model minority starting in the early 60s. Yeah, it's interesting that the Jews, even after the concentration camps, the same thing. My family, I grew up in 1942, you know, the Jews felt like this is our opportunity, you know, to be good Americans. And they were not anti-fascist, you know, most of them were not anti-fascist anymore, you know. And, and uh, so where'd you grow up? Where, where's, where is this? So I, was, I grew up in Maryland right. until I was about first grade. And then family moved back to East Bay of San Francisco, East Bay, and then to Belmont, and then in 1964, when the civil, when the housing laws prevented uh, outlawed dis- racial discrimination in housing, uh, they bought a home in San Mateo, and that's where I went to junior high school and high school. Then, of course, this is a time when the war is Vietnam War is raging. Right. You know, I was I think 16, and Bobby Kennedy ran, and I, you know, volunteered in the, his anti-war his anti-war campaign. And then, of course, he was killed, and we saw King killed, and Malcolm had been killed, and we felt like the system was not going to tolerate peaceful change. And so we had to do something more radical. I think a lot of people don't understand how great the last year or two of Bobby Kennedy's life was, because he had been a hatchet man for John Kennedy. He had been a uh, horrible person, really, as the attorney general. He screwed the civil rights movement, by the way. He would not send federal troops down there aggressively. We hated the Kennedys. But he did go through a transformation, and the actual campaign he ran in 68, right, was very anti-war and very pro-black. In fact, they asked him once, how come you didn't win in Oregon? He said, not enough black people there. <laughs> <laughs> so we both I was a very big supporter of Kennedy even though I was by then very anti-imperialist so when is the point that you say I think I'm really to the left of almost all the conversations I'm in so this is in high school still you know after the, the Kennedy assassination and then you know people were reading left journals and you know this is near San Francisco so we're available to that and an Asian American, a radical Asian American publication called Ghidra started to publicize. Hmm. And again, the term Asian, Asian American, didn't even emerge until the San Francisco state strike in 1968. Right. Wow. So I, so it was, it was a, it was a very new kind of identity for us to be adopting. When we went to college, and the first year in college is at UC San Diego, and you know the war is raging, and we went out on strike, and and so after a few months we went out on strike, and I never went back. But really? I did, yeah. So, but I did feel like you know we went on a strike 
and nothing changed. I mean, the whole city, everything was just normal. I mean, everything was normal except, you know, hundreds of us were out. A lot of students went back after a few weeks, you know, after, but essentially nothing had changed. So we realized, whereas in, in, in Paris, in France, the workers and students both went out and the city shut down. Right. Things ground to a halt. So I realized I wasn't going to learn anything in school, and that's when I came and moved to Los Angeles in 1972 and became active in the Japanese-American and Asian-American community movements and started working in a small Japanese family-owned plumbing industry business, you know, to get some craft experience so I could eventually go into uh, one of the manufacturing plants. So you're pretty, I mean, that's a pretty planned and conscious character to like say I'm going to go into a Japanese-American to learn a skill, right? Uh, I don't know. How, it was semi-conscious. I'm not going to say, say I was that planned, but we knew that, you know, the idea of the working class, the idea of strategic points of production, you know, that was not a, a, a rare concept. So I, how we would do it, we, did, you know, had no specific plan. And I was part of a, an Asian-American collective called East Wind at the time. And so I and another person got hired at Ford Motor Company. Uh, you know, we were in discussions with... Where, where was that? Ford and Pico Rivera right, in right. southeast know, Los Angeles. Right. And so we, but we were in discussions with other left groups, primarily IWK and ATM, and ATM had people at the Ford plant too. And as well as it was the role of Latino labor was so important there yes. because we had the chairman of the California La Raza Unida Party, Fred Aguilar, you know, he was there. He was uh, one of the leading stewards at the Ford plant. And there was a lot of LRUP people who were active there. Um, so take a step back. I just want our listeners to understand. IWK means E. War Kuhn, which is a very exciting Asian Pacific Islander collective started in San Francisco. We'll check out the whole international hotel struggle. ATM is August 29th movement. Marxist Leninist, which I joined, and Mark, you never joined IWK, right? Or did you? No, we we just joined after IWK and ATM had merged, but before the Congress of African People had merged. Got it, got yeah. it. So you're in an Asian Pacific Islander collective. How do we explain to people that we understood that? Well, first of all, there were factory jobs to be had, and the second thing is that if you can imagine back in the seventies. We had Ford Pico Rivera, Mack Truck and Hayward, Goodyear Tires, Bethlehem Steel. We had GM Southgate, GM Van Nuys. I mean, in the film Tiger by the Tail, we're talking about you know, 25 to 30,000 highly unionized, well-paid industrial jobs that had become the backbone of the Chicano and black communities. I mean, back then, you got a job at Ford, you were made, right? I mean, you were. And you were making, you know, we laugh, everybody's saying, fight for 15. I think we were making 15. We were making, I think, 12 bucks an hour and 18 for overtime, right? Back then. Mm -hmm. So it was a great job, very hard work, which other people don't understand. I mean, uh, and as you said, many of the most political conscious people wanted to go into those factories, right? So before we go a little further, I have a question. It's always a question, sort of why you? Because, you know, you take all these people, almost like same 
objective biography. What makes Mark Masaoka, for instance, not go back to UC San Diego, which is very interesting, I didn't know that. What makes you want to go into the point of production? What makes you think the French workers and students proves to you the significance? That's a lot of consciousness. Why you? I think there was a lot of consciousness. I mean, there was a, you know, a Golden Gate Park. I mean, there were like over 100,000 people multiple times. And you just looked out and it was a solid wave, a solid wave of people. And, and then this is a time when one third of the world was socialist. Right. And then you still had the anti-colonial, the revolutionary anti-colonial struggles waging throughout much of the third world. So when you know Khrushchev said we will bury you, that was taken very seriously, <laughs> and I think you know, and and so I think there was a sense that, um, yes, that the, the, the peaceful change was not going to be tolerated or allowed to, uh, so we had to take much more militant kinds of strides. We already knew that a huge, large section of the army was drafted, so you had a large number of very angry, skilled people with military tactics, you know, who really wanting to end the system that forced them into this horrible war. So there were, you know, and then groups like the Latinos were iced out of the Democratic Party, and they had to create Elrup, the, the Rossinilla Party, and ran candidates against the Democrats and took enough votes away that the Democrats had to accept them because they were losing elections because they were spoiling their, their, their victories. Right. So you have these factors that led to what many of us perceived as moving towards some kind of revolutionary situation. And in terms of nonprofits, they were non-existent. That's right. Okay, so like in Little Tokyo, I think there was um, two social workers and one one paid for by the Chamber of Japanese Chamber of Commerce and one other, and that was it. And now you've got, you know, several hundred people working in various nonprofits in Little Tokyo. So that, you know, so those were the circumstances. So that wasn't even a career option for anybody. It was, you know, it was either a traditional job or, you know, that's what that's what your choices were. And that created the movements that we came out of. Yeah, and again, for, for our listeners to understand the number of people who made decisions like you did, Mark, you know, who made life, what felt were life choices. You know, my first wife, Nancy, and I, we would go out to dinner. I was already working at CORE, and we kept going to dinner. We'd meet these white people, and we never got through one dinner with them. You know, we was pick a fight by about by about the third bite. It was like, what are you doing? What do you mean? No, this is no, no. I don't want to hear this. You went to the Democratic Party. Let's end this dinner. You know, and it was like you broke with your old friends, you broke with the old cultures, and you looked towards people you wanted to work with, and there were millions of them. So it wasn't like you were, you know, you were giving up for us our old life. You could say. But I was already in the black community when I was 21. So that's where I wanted to be. And that's where Nancy wanted to be. So that's where we went. Also, as you're saying, just all the different times, I went to the SDS March on Washington, April 1965, against the war in Vietnam. I'd known about it. And then I think I was just really starting to get outraged about it. I, I mean, months before, not years and that day changed my whole life, the talk about Bob Moses saying, we have to fight defoliation in Vietnam and segregation in Mississippi. And Paul Potter said, we have to name the system that would 
create such heinous crimes. And uh, I was in. I was in black Vietnamese. That was the sort of two fulcrums of everybody's life, I think, is the point. Talk about the black movement's influence on you in terms of your consciousness at that period in life. Well, I've been raised, my mother was very religious, and um, partly because of my of the family's affiliation with the JACL, there was support for the civil rights movement, you know, the marches, and my father took our family when I was very young to hear Martin Luther King speak at Glide Memorial in San Francisco. Wow, wow. And I don't remember anything about it other than when I came out, there were like hundreds of people standing there silently, in absolute silence. And it just struck me, because normally I thought, you got out of church, everyone's chatting away, but it was dead silent because people were just so moved by the experience that they were just quiet. And when you're seven or eight years old, that's what you, you take. This was the first of a three-part series with Mark Masaoka, a great movement veteran. Part two will be aired next week. I've been obsessed with the song, chant, prayer, Awanele, that sends me into a trance of joy and meditation and dance. Awanele by Hector Lavoe for more than five years. Most often you hear the full phrase, Aonele Mai Mai. On the record it goes, Aguanale, Aguanele Mai Mai, Aguanale, Aguanele Mai Mai, Aguanale, Aguanele Mai Mai, Aguanale, Aguanele Mai Mai. The term, Aguanele Mai Mai, is praising the Yoruba Orisha called Ogun. Ogun is the god of war and metal. He is the deity that works day and night without ever resting. He's the primordial blacksmith. In the mythology, other gods finally seduced him to put his work at the service of building a new society. Now, others say it means cleanse your house. I'll leave it to you to find the meaning in yourself. For me, it is the slaves from Africa coming to Cuba, praying to African, not Spanish gods. The rest is history. So let's deeply appreciate Awanele. Also recommend the film El Cantante with brilliant Mark Anthony and Jennifer Lopez. What seems to be an accurate presentation of the tormented genius Hector Lavoe.
Folks, I'm exhausted just listening to the show and producing it. We are very thankful about Victor Wallace, Mark Masaoka, Ernesto Arce, Hector Lavoe, Awanele, and you out there are listeners. The way we know your listeners is if you write to Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com and tell us what you think of the show. If you go on our website, Voices From The Frontlines, please register. You'll get a weekly update on the show that's coming and then after the show you'll get a link to the podcast take good care and remember it never gets old all power to the people